beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we're going to visit a garbage dump. It's located far away, about 160 kilometers south of Cairo in Egypt, in a town which used to be called Oxyrhynchus. And in the late 1800s, a couple of British archaeologists discovered this town's ancient dump, and they started digging through it. And at first they were disappointed because it was just a, a lot of old trash. But then they started to find documents, all kinds of documents, between 500,000 to 1 million documents, tax bills, letters, court records, sales, leases, wills, bills, accounts, inventories, edicts, official government correspondence, going back thousands of years, going back to before the year one. And there's also a huge trove of Christian documents. You see, in the early centuries after Pentecost, a fairly large Christian community developed at Oxyrhynchus. In fact, about half of the ancient papyri of the New Testament that we have today come from Oxyrhynchus. The papyrus is kind of a very heavy paper made in that region, and in the dry climate there, it lasts and lasts and lasts. So about half of the ancient papyri of the New Testament that we have today come from this garbage dump. Some of these date to just a few decades after the death of the Apostle John, so they're very ancient. And then there are the attestations. Some of them date back to only about 150 years after the death of the Apostle John. Attestations. Yeah, attestations that we use. Letters of testimony written by the church and carried by a member who was traveling or moving to another area. And it's interesting to note that about 2,000 years ago, the Christian church had the same practice that we have today. Attestations are not a Canadian Reformed invention or idiosyncrasy, but just 150 years after the New Testament was completed, we see that the practice of sending and receiving attestations is well established in the Christian church. And just like we do today, the attestations distinguish between communicant members and members who do not yet participate in the Lord's Supper. And there's a good reason for this. The Christian church has always practiced a supervised Lord's Supper. The church Catholic has always been very careful to ensure to the best of her ability that the sacrament is celebrated by professing Christians who are faithful in doctrine and in life. And you can see this concern in question and answer 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Now, if you have your psalm book open, check out the structure of the answer. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? It's structured much like the catechism itself is structured. Those who come to the table of the Lord must know their sins. That's the first part of the catechism. They must trust that Christ has paid for their sins. That's the second part of the catechism. And then they must desire to grow in faith and in holiness. That's the third part of the catechism. So who are to come to the table of the Lord? 
Well, those who know the only comfort in life and death, those who know that they belong to Christ, those who know that their sins are washed in the blood of the Lamb, those who know that they have been set free from all the power of the devil, those whom the Spirit makes heartily willing and ready to live for Christ, those who understand sin, salvation, and service, those who know guilt, grace, and gratitude. In other words, true believers are to come to the table. And in answer 82, the next one, we see the flip side of this. If only true believers should come to the table, then fake believers and non-believers don't belong at the table. Now, we can't tell who is a fake believer, who is a hypocrite. If someone outwardly professes Christ and does not openly live in sin, but in their heart has no love for God, we simply can't judge that. And so we confess that Hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. We know that God is a righteous judge, and that his judgment is terrible upon those who partake in the holy sacrament with a hard, cold, unbelieving heart. We can't see the heart, so we leave the hypocrites to God. And we go by the judgment of charity, the judgment of love, if someone professes the faith with their mouth, and as far as we can tell, seeks to live out the faith in a life of holiness, then we hold that person to be a true Christian. Now, the church does, however, have a duty to ensure that people who, by their confession and life, show that they are unbelieving and ungodly, are not admitted to the Lord's Supper. And this is not just a problem for the unbelieving and ungodly, that they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. It's a problem for the whole church. To have a godless unbeliever participating in the most sacred and intimate fellowship meal of Christ in his church is a terrible offense. It brings pollution into the covenant relationship. It incites the anger, the holy anger of God. And that divine anger is not directed only at the sinner, but God's wrath is kindled against the whole congregation. Why? Well, because the congregation says, Lord, we love you. And we celebrate that Christ's blood washes us from all our sins. That's what the congregation says. And then the congregation turns around and says to the unrepentant sinner, you love sin, not Christ. And we love fellowship with you more than we love fellowship with Christ. We are willing to tolerate the pollution of unrepentant sin and unholiness in the marriage relationship between Christ and the church. You see, it's not like the church is a fast food restaurant and the Lord's Supper is something you can just drop by to enjoy for your own personal nourishment. The church isn't McDonald's and the Lord's Supper a drive-through order. At a fast food restaurant, it's all about the individual and what they're looking for. There's no communion between you and the other people sitting in the restaurant or the other people lined up in the drive-thru. The church is the body of Christ. It is the holy congregation and covenant people of God. When one member rejoices, all rejoice. When one member suffers, all suffer. And when one member is living in unrepentant sin, that affects terribly the whole body. You remember what happened to Achan? You can read about it in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, Achan disobeyed God. 
he stole some of the things that God had devoted to destruction. He stole some gold and some clothing, and he hid them under his tent. And because of this sin of Achan, the covenant of God had been profaned. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, is under God's wrath. And so they lose the battle at Ai. Now, if you have your Bible handy, look at what happens next. Joshua is distraught. He falls on his face before the Lord. What does God say there in Joshua chapter 7, verse 10? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? There's Joshua. He's fallen on his face before the Lord. The elders and him have put dust in their heads and they're being all humble. And the Lord gets angry with them. He says, get up. What are you falling on your face for? And then look what God says in the next verse. Listen very carefully to how God describes the problem. He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed the covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. They, the whole church has done this. How does that work? We know it was Achan. Why is God blaming everybody here? Well, brothers and sisters, we've been born and we live in an age which over the last 300 years has been polluted with an ungodly and unbiblical individualism stemming from the Enlightenment. It's hard for us to process the communal and covenantal understanding of human life, which has been the, the default understanding for most of human history, and which is the, the biblical worldview the concept built into the very structure of creation itself. Humanity is not a collection of autonomous individuals, but humans were created to live in deep, meaningful, interdependent relationships. And that creational truth starts with the family, it extends to the church, and to all of human life and society. And so, in order to understand what's happening here in Joshua chapter 7, we need a radical transformation of our way of thinking and our way of seeing the world. We need the Holy Spirit to give us a biblical understanding of covenantal responsibility. You see, Achan's undealt with sin was not just his problem. It was a problem for the whole congregation. It's no different today. That's why even now there are a number of members under discipline. Why are they under discipline? Is it because they're not good enough? Is it because they don't match up to our standards? Not at all. We're all sinners. We all fall short. The church is a place for sinners to come, to be welcomed, to hear the gospel, to have grace ministered to us. The church is a place where the word and the sacraments declare God's grace and forgiveness and washing away of sin. But the church is not a place where living in sin can be tolerated. Undealt with sin in the church kindles the wrath of God against the whole congregation. Yes, God will judge us as a church for choosing to fellowship at the Lord's table with unrepentant sinners. And so if a member chooses to love sin more than he loves Christ, then with heavy hearts we must set in motion the process which eventually leads to excommunication. 
And we do this for the glory of God. And we do this for the holiness of the church. And we do this out of love for the sinner. Look at the last line there in question answer 82. Until they amend their lives. They're excluded until they amend their lives. And that is the hope. That is the longing of the elders and the congregation during the entire process of discipline we long for. We pray for the repentance and restoration of the sinner. And even when, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, we are duty-bound to exclude impenitent sinners from the congregation, we do this in love. And we do this in the prayer that the Holy Spirit would grant the grace of repentance and faith. And the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal for the family of God. It is a meal of intimate fellowship and communion with Christ and with one another. It is holy. It is sacred. It is the deepest, most intense, most intimate experience of Christ and his people on this side of glory. And that's why it is only for believers. Christ embraces his bride in love. Now, when a husband and wife are embracing, it would be an ugly and unholy thing for the wife to reach out and kiss some random person walking by. And so it is with the church. There is no room for an outsider to participate in this intimate communion. And that's why we carefully supervise participation at the supper. Even in the case of our own children, they're born into the covenant with God. They have the mark of the triune God on their foreheads. They are heirs of the promise. And still, we take time to bring them up in the fear of the Lord, to teach them the gospel, to teach them to read the scripture, to pray, to know God. And we work hard and we invest a lot of money to give them a Christian education. And we teach them for at least six years of catechism. Now, why do we do all this? We do this prayerfully waiting on the Lord, that he would regenerate their hearts, that he would give them the gift of faith, and we pray and we pray and we pray that the Lord would work faith in their hearts so that they would embrace the gospel. We long for the day when they will stand up before God and his congregation and say, God loved me first, and I love God back. I love God more than anything. I want to take up my cross. I want to deny myself. I want to follow Christ. I want to keep walking in the way that my parents have been leading me along. But now I want to walk in that way, not only as a child of the covenant, but as a professing believer. And so it begins with our children. We supervise the table. There's not automatic admission. We take the time to ensure that they show true faith and live godly lives. And we do the same for people who come to the church as adults. Someone shows up at the church and says, I want to be a Christian. We don't immediately invite them in to sit down at the Lord's table. But we get to know them. We take the time. We ascertain how much they know about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the gospel. We instruct them in the gospel. And we prayerfully work with them until the elders are satisfied that they are able to give a credible profession of faith and that they live a life of holiness and commitment to Christ. The elders look for faith and the fruits of faith. And this all takes time, but it's an important process which cannot be short-circuited. 
So the church is very careful to supervise admission to the Lord's table for our own covenant children and for new converts. Now, what about visitors? Well, there are some who would argue that when it comes to visitors, we can dispense with all the careful, thorough work of supervision that we apply to covenant children and new converts. If somebody enters, uh, visits a worship service, they declare themselves to be a believer, then we should simply embrace them as brothers in Christ and receive them at the table of the Lord. But why would we do that? Why would we suddenly abandon the careful supervision of the table when it comes to visitors? In fact, also when it comes to visitors, the church is duty-bound to maintain the holiness of the sacrament. And the way in which the table is supervised with respect to visitors can vary from church to church and from time to time. But there are very good biblical principles which demand that the table be supervised. The first principle is this. The Bible teaches that no one can testify on their own behalf. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, the Holy Spirit stipulates that one witness is not enough, but that everything must be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the Lord Jesus himself picks up on this when he says in John chapter 5, verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. This is the way the church, according to the ordinance of God, establishes the facts of a matter. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, and he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a biblical principle spanning the Old and New Testaments. And it is because of this principle that elders visit us in groups of two. When they report back to the consistory, the joyful report of visiting a family showing the signs of a living faith and a growing love for God is received on the testimony of two witnesses. It is established. And if there is any discipline necessary, consistory will never proceed to the next step only on the word of one office bearer. Everything must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's why two elders visit with the young people who wish to profess their faith. And that's why two elders visit with a new convert before he or she professes their faith before the congregation. And that's why visitors to a worship service must not be admitted to the table based on their own testimony. The church, according to the scriptures, must seek confirmation of that testimony. And so the first biblical principle is that no one can testify on their own behalf. And the second scriptural principle, as we have already seen, is that people who live unbelieving and ungodly lives must not be admitted to the Lord's Supper. Because if they are, Great covenant wrath will fall upon them and the whole congregation. So how do we know where the visitor is at? Perhaps a visitor comes from a distant place and says, I am a brother. But he does not mention that he is under discipline in his home church. Or he does not mention that he is openly living in sin and his church is not dealing with his sin. Or perhaps... He is living in sin, but he does not consider his sin to be sin. Perhaps he says he is a Christian, but he believes that Jesus is only a man and not true God. Perhaps he is a Christian, but he is not under the supervision of or in fellowship with any church. 
and so is living in unfaithfulness all by himself. How do we know? We are careful to supervise admission to the table for our own covenant children. We are careful to supervise admission admission to the table for new converts. We take many months, even many years, to ensure that those who participate in the supper are known to lead believing and godly lives. So why would we suddenly abandon all this careful supervision when a random stranger walks into the assembly? According to the scripture, we must be careful to have evidence that the visitor professes the faith. According to the scripture, we must be careful to have evidence that the visitor leads a godly life. How? Well, the time-honored and time-tested way to do this we find in the garbage dump in Oxyrhynchus. This was the practice of the early church. We receive a visitor to the table not based on his own self-testimony, but based on the testimony of his church. We may not know the brother or sister, but we know their church to be a faithful church of the Lord. And so we receive their testimony about this brother and admit him to the Lord's Supper. Now, in the olden days, the attestation of life and doctrine would often by necessity be a written letter. In our modern age, it could be a phone call, an email, text message, video call. But the scriptural imperative remains. Everything must be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. The practice of receiving visitors by attestation is ancient. It is already well established in the first decades after the New Testament was completed. In fact, it is rooted in what was already the practice of the apostles in the time of the New Testament. Yes, we don't just find attestations in the garbage dump at Oxyrhynchus. We also find them on the pages of Scripture. If you turn your Bible to Romans chapter 16 and look at verse 1. Romans 16, 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, it's quite possible that Phoebe was the one that carried this letter of Paul to the church at Rome. They don't know who she is. So Paul gives an apostolic testimony. He calls her a sister, which in the ancient attestations communicates the fact that this person is a communicant member. Phoebe was not an unbeliever, nor was she a catechumen. She was a professing member of a known sister church. In fact, the attestation goes on to explain that she had an official function in the church. She was a servant, and the word used here is the very same word as the New Testament uses for deacon. And then turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 3, 1. And here Paul writes the following. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now, there's a lot that we can say about this text. But right now, the important thing is, to note that the Apostle Paul is talking about attestations, letters of recommendation. 
He refers to them as something that is commonly known and commonly used amongst the churches. And one example is when Apollo wanted to travel from Ephesus to Achaia. You look at Acts chapter 18, verse 27, Acts 18, 27. And there the scripture says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. That's an attestation right there. In our postmodern 21st century culture, there is a powerful impetus to despise tradition and to mock the old way of doing things. And this is an ungodly attitude. Scripture teaches us to respect and honor the accumulated wisdom expressed in the biblical tradition of the church. Now today, we hear some voices suggesting that we should toss the practice of attestations in the trash. Hopefully, the garbage dump at Oxyrhynchus leads us to pause and reflect before doing something so hasty and ill-advised. In fact, the practice of attestations is an ancient and biblical tradition of the Church of Christ. It is evidence that the church treasures the Lord's Supper as a holy sacrament. It is evidence that the church wants to practice biblical, God-honoring communion at the table of the Lord. It is evidence that we believe what God tells us to believe, that those who come to the table of the Lord ought to be true believers, who know their sins, who know their Savior, who know what it is to live in holiness. And the practice of attestations is evidence that the church understands the terrible consequences of profaning the covenant of God by receiving at table people who live unbelieving and ungodly lives. The practice of attestations is evidence that the church knows who she is. She is not a social group. She is not an ethnic enclave. She is not a group of people bound together by ties of friendship, family, and marriage. Rather, she is a holy congregation of believers, united to one another and to Christ by faith. And that's exactly who we ought to be. Amen.